Hello everyone, it's the Wine Hour, the talk show that removes your wine anxiety. A warm welcome to all of you. Today is a green day. As Russian troops and tanks are entering Ukraine, we watch helpless what could become the biggest war on European soil since World War II. The problem with war is that you know how it starts, but you never know how it ends. So I'm based in Lebanon, a country that has its share of wars and strife and turmoils. And through all these turmoils, the ones that really suffered were the innocents. So when greed and power get together in an insatiable thirst for gain and dominance, the words become possible. And war is the ugliest expression of that thirst. What we can do now is pray and send our thoughts to the population of Ukraine. What we can also do is relentlessly oppose hatred and oppression with a beautiful side of mankind. Music, art, culture are just examples of what connects us. When freedom of expressions and thoughts and the celebration of culture are threatened, we enter dark times. They are essentials to our humanity, and if they go away, hope disappears. In the West, we are used to peace and democracy, and we tend to forget that it is vital to defend these rights. Each one of us, with our own abilities and means, we can do our part. This is how we create hope, because at the end, hope is all we have. So here's the menu of today's special show for many reasons. First, in Encore, uh, Jamie, Akash, and Ray, we talk about fake wines and counterfeits and the impact on the industry and collectors. Then in License to Taste, Tanisha will give us a primer on the wines of Malta, and she will give us her version of the Black History Month in 60 seconds. And then finally, in Have a Drink With Me, I'll have the pleasure to welcome our special guest, Joseph Galeja. But now first, uh, let's start with introduction of today's cast. From the beautiful island of Malta and currently in Berlin, where last night he performed as Rodolfo in the premiere of La Boheme at the Deutsche Oper in Berlin. It's a marvelous honor, privilege, and pleasure to welcome Joseph Galeja. <laughs> Thank you. Good evening, Joseph. Good evening. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, what are you drinking? It's the, it's the normal question. We, uh, um, I'm, uh, I'm going to be um, expelled by the Jurat of Saint-Emilion by saying this, but it's uh, pineapple juice. Okay, great. I, I, can't, I can't drink alcohol <laughs> when, I, when I'm when I'm, saying, I'm very strict about that. Um, it's one of the last few rules I do follow. So I had, I had a performance yesterday. I'm performing again on Saturday. So um, I'm I'm on the just um, I'm on a tea, tea totaler at the moment. Oh, great! I'm having herbal tea, so I'm, yeah. That's so okay. it's uh, joining. You were you were a good sport. Thank you so much for <laughs> pouring yourself a glass of Margot to tease me. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's the moment you have all been waiting for. So they make wine, you know, interesting, fun, controversial, and even soulful and even lovable. So coming from our virtual global studio, the one and only wine dream team. Introducing Akos Fordsek, the man of love <laughs> from London. How are you, Akos? Thank you very much. I'm all right. I hope everybody is well as well. What are you having? This time, given the circumstances, I brought out the big guns. <laughs> so it's a Magnum Taros Armagnac 1967, which is my birth year. And um, well, to be honest with you, as uh, Joseph cannot drink, I'll drink for him as well. Okay, you know? so I guess the evening is going to be very long. <laughs> 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 
Joseph, this is to your health. Uh, you know, if you combine juice with this, it will become almost a wine percentage. So Thank you. We, we, we call that in Malta the leg cutter, the leg remover, because uh, after a couple, you don't feel your legs. Because <laughs> it, it always comes after the... Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the wines uh, are favorites there. Can we mention brands? We yeah, can, yeah right? you can do whatever that's you want. A great, that's a great <laughs> Armagnac. Um, I have that, but uh, favorite brands of Malta are the Summerlands and the Labert d'Olive. Yeah, we have On the plus Armagnac. Sorry, right. to you again. No, no, it's nice. So we're staying in Europe from Paris, Tanisha Townsend. <laughs> Hi, Tanisha. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I like the hat. Thank you. Looks cool. It was me being lazy. I didn't comb all of no, my hair. A, yeah, There's yeah. that. <laughs> what, what are you having? I'm having water because great. Um, I needed a break. So. Okay, excellent. I'm back at it tomorrow, but water. Excellent. Too. Now we are moving across the pond. She was actually moving. <laughs> Jimmy Orajo. <laughs> I made it. I made she it. Just, she just came from the airport. She's in Miami. And I, you, yeah. you, you sang yeah. in, in Florida not a long time ago, Joseph. And I'm, I'm going back there in, uh, in a week, in, a, in, in eight days. I don't know if you can see Miami, but there yes, it is. Yes, nice Gorgeous. View. Not lying. Nice. And I literally just got in my room. I, I, yeah, I left Raleigh, North Carolina this morning sometime. And here I am. Hooray. Yeah. So you're having water, I guess, or not nothing. You I'm literally have... having nothing because I haven't. I don't even know where the mini bar is. So okay. um, go and grab I'm something. Evening is gonna be long. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, coming from New York City, it's always a fantastic pleasure to have Mr. Ray Isla. Good afternoon, Ray. Afternoon, afternoon. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm drinking some Barolo. Oh. Uh, Producer, <laughs> the producer that I don't uh, from a tasting I did this morning. A producer I've never run into before, and uh, nice, kind of in a delicate style. Mm. Okay, okay, good. So now, if everybody's ready, uh, grab a glass of apple juice, pineapple juice, water, tea, nothing, anything, uh, just a <laughs> toast to all of you. Thank you for being here, and relax and enjoy the show. Cheers. Here we go. Today's Uncorked is about fake wines, counterfeit, the impact on the industry, and collectors. Ray was super excited about this. He told me I have tons of things to say on that. So we start <laughs> with you, Ray. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's an absolutely fascinating, uh, alarming sometimes topic. It's, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of conversation right now about, about fake wines kind of at the top end of the auction scale. And and there's a lot of, of also counterfeiting of wines at the commodity level and depending on the country you're in um it's you know it's there's a history of this going back to you know to time of uh, you know the romans that um, wine's been adulterated in all kind of ways um you know falernium which was the the top wine of the romans was um often counterfeited and sold for less than it should be sold to unwitting people um 
you know, they've, they've doctored wines with lead, with, you know, mercury, with all kinds of things over the years. Um, not very good for you. I, I did not like really, no. <laughs> not no, recently, not yeah. recently. Yeah. So, not recently, no. no and it tends to be more labels and just fake cheap wine in bottles now. But I, I did like the fact that I, I've been looking this up, you know, um, punishments for fake wine in the past, at least, um, you know, today you just get, you know, maybe thrown out of the country like Rudy. But um, in the past, it it ranged from having to drink a glass of the fake wine and then having the rest of it poured over your head, um, which was one punishment in England, to um, being... um, either uh hanged or or i think burned alive in germany oh that is, that's that's germans that, don't that, screw that, around no they don't <laughs> really do not so, you know and you know, I, I you know if you're going to counterfeit some drc that might be a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a kind of way of keeping people from getting too many ideas but it's you know it's 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 quite something um i i, I find this stuff at the higher level fascinating though not necessarily I don't tend to write about old DRC or old, you know, Petrus or, or, or the ones that are counterfeited, but I do find the, the willingness of people to believe in things that clearly can't be real um, to be fascinating. There was at one point I was talking to a sommelier and he's like, there's more 1921 Petrus in Vegas than was ever, ever bottled, <laughs> you know, there's probably a problem there. Had a couple of bottles and it's like, there just wasn't that much. So, um, so it's both, you know, it's, it is, it's unquestionably a problem. Um, but is, is it widespread? I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's quite, I think it's widespread at the top of the auction scale. Um, you know, there are quite famous instances, um, you know, documented recently with, you know, with Rudy Kerniawan, it was, it's the most recent major um, situation, but, um, you know, with, with just a lot of bottles being not what they claim to be, um, and and it's expanding. There's and there's actually quite a bit of worry about counterfeiting in the whiskey business right now too, and particularly in bourbon, bourbon more than single malt scotch, but but both. And it and if you look online, there are a lot of empty high end bourbon bottles for sale, um, which you know is a twenty one year old Pappy Van Winkle empty bottle that may end up on a shelf filled with you know um, old whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a, a, a natural extension of the, the combination of, of the romance of the mm. industry, the egos of certain collectors, and the, the value that's placed on these bottles in the secondary market yeah. um, is sort of a perfect storm. And it's also, you're dealing with, I mean, you know, even it was something that's unlikely, like a 47, you know, Petrus or whatever. I mean, most of them get traded back and forth without ever getting opened. Um, and then if they do get open, how many people have drunk enough 47 Petrus to know what it's supposed to taste like? Or what um, it's supposed to taste like today. Or what it's going to taste like today. Um, so it's it's such an opportunity, you know, in a sense for people who want to counterfeit. I'm going to run a very quick poll. And when we see, we look at the, res- the result at the end. I-, I wanted to jump with Akosh, just one second. You're a fine wine merchant. How big a problem is that for you in, in, uh, in, the, in the business? I have seen that um, with Agon wines very first-handed myself. So when uh, I started with Agon in 2004, no wine was contributed at all, zero. In, as um, we worked the brand and, and it got better and better and better and globally as well and more recognized, about four or five years ago, we started seeing coming out of Belgium, 
by Chinese entrepreneurs, uh, counterfeited Egon Miller TBA bottles that were made up of different vintages and things like that. And, um, you know, that has become a problem. That has become a problem. And uh, go online and you can see that Egon posted that somebody broke into his winery and stole papers of label rolls with Trockenberg and on it, mm-hmm. with number 75 CLs, half bottles and magnums. So every magnum and bottle is, is numbered. So he published uh, on the internet saying this is what happened. And uh, they didn't come in to steal the wine. They, they came and stole specifically the labels only. And that was, uh, I mean, the first time I've ever seen that is when I was working for Hennessy in Eastern Europe. And, and there I would go to a bar and I would order a bottle, uh, you know, a glass of Hennessy. And definitely it was Georgian brandy. No question. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really interesting, though, how much it has made some of the higher end brands think about their um, their supply chain and their traceability. And oh. that's actually not a bad thing. You know, I know um, Chateau Latour has done some incredible work with um, microchips and barcodes and, and being able to actually trace your bottle, um, which is probably the way. But it, it's interesting, though. I don't think there's a whole lot. There's been such a crackdown on the high end and there have been so many... Um, like experts coming in and all of a sudden now it's, you know, after the whole um, Ponceau debacle, a lot of the more, the larger issues have been with lower end wines. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the Cote de Rune or whatever, or, or a, um, you know, a Bordeaux with an S on the end, um, just kind of preying on the lack of knowledge of a local entry-level wine drinker and that can be really damaging for a whole region i I wanted just one second one second one second second. i wanted to ask joseph you're a collector you're a wine collector is that a problem i I, how do you make sure that what you buy (laughs) is actually the real thing i usually buy directly from the uh, well not directly from the chateau but from people that i know that get their wines from the chateaus and um, i'm lucky to know many uh, suppliers in saint-emillon which is my main region where i collect personally so I know that the wines I have are definitely not um, counterfeit. In a wine tasting, I, I once uh, we came across, uh, might have been a 47 Fijac, I'm not sure that was uh, counterfeit, but we'll give it away. Um, I know they sometimes they recondition the bottle, but the, the wine was just too young, too new world to be anything like a 40, 47. For example, I have... Um, a Mutoro Child uh, uh, 42, um, um, which was made by very naughty people, and a 49. And I had uh, four bottles, and we'd, I'd be drunk one of each. The 42 was not drinkable. The 49 was fantastic. Um, so I, I still have a bottle of each of that. But um, it is a worry when, when you buy um, from auctions, um, even from reputable auction houses, it is a problem. So I try not to do that as much as possible unless the deal is so good that then you don't care in the sense that if you end up with counterfeit, you end up with counterfeit. You can do nothing about it. But uh, what, what I try to do is just to check the provenance. And um, I'm lucky to have uh, Michael Tabone um, in Malta, who's, uh, who's family, but he's also a wine guru. And his life, his world is wine. Um, and he made my life revolve also around wine because that's all we do when I'm in Malta. I have many hobbies, of course, scuba okay. diving and dogs and everything. But <laughs> but when I'm in Malta, we call them uh, the catching up um, from the dry period because when I'm singing, I cannot um, 
<laughs> you drink, drink. So when I so I'm so I'm not singing. We have what we called twelve-hour lunches. They start at midday and they <laughs> end at midnight, with a lot of the Armaniac, like uh, like Akos showed before. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, like so. Akos, <laughs> yes, like, yeah. like Akos. He has those so, those twelve-hour thing going. Uh, absolutely. On. I, think, so, I think that's it's super interesting though. Do, do you think though that when you buy you know old wines, very rare wines at auction, um, counterfeit is sort of another potential issue like you know who knows how it was stored who knows what the fill level you know it, it's it's just one of those things that you're taking you're a gamble on um yeah. i don't know I, so I think the question of trust there's a question of okay there's technology but not the old bottles probably it's going to be hard to put technology on these things how, the, the question provenance. of trust is very important in this case yeah there's i mean the private there's provenance and there's and there's and counterfeiting and that's like they people cheat on provenance as well which is what you're saying jamie you know that it's of course it was stored in you know um in in cellar conditions for for 75 years which you know <laughs> actually on a loading dock in 1952 for six hours and it was cooked um i just i put a background up here this is a label um from this is a counterfeit chinese label um it's it's pinfold's bin 389 but it actually says pinfinol's fin 389 shiraz and and that's the kind of counterfeit that is not high end. I mean, that's a that's a that's a baseline pinfolds wine. That's you know, I think the prices have gone up. It's about fifty bucks now. It used to be thirty five, and that's just that's counterfeit. As you were talking about, to an audience that that just doesn't know wine and and will fall for you know something that is clearly counterfeit, but it, it exists. It was made to be a counterfeit wine. Um, but, well, and and so that we just don't go down some weird racist rabbit hole and right. think it's it, in China. Um, yeah. When I used to work at Moet, no worries. there were, they literally had people who just went around like the markets in Southern Italy and, and in different parts of Spain looking for um, counterfeit bottles of Moet because there were all kinds of things that looked vaguely like that had the little necker on and all that, um, that were trading on the image that Moet had created. So um, it's certainly not something that's new. No, and, and it's not, and it's definitely not just China. I didn't mean to throw into the into the bin, no, but, but it has it, happened a lot in China. So I know we tend to go yeah. that way, but just yeah. yeah. So we, Akosh, I wanted to ask you as 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 a, as a fine wine merchant. So these are things, as you were saying before, you 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 were exposed to when there's a buyer coming in, and they don't know you. Is that a question that arises uh, when you build up the trust with that new buyer, where they ask you about you know the provenance? Is it you know? Uh, is it, is, well, it, is it the right stuff? It, Can we trust you, etc.? I'll be honest with you. If you asked me this question about 15 years ago, I would say yes. But now, because we have been around for 22 years, you know, uh, people know our reputation and uh, the clientele that we have. It really doesn't, has never really been in question. But it is, it is true that, you know, when we start out with someone, you know, it's like putting your foot into the water, right? You dip your toes in first and then you check it out and then you, you move from, uh, on from there. And there, are, there were instances where clients say, okay, you know, <clears throat> get me, I, I want to build a collection, but... So I said, I have this wine that I found. And the guy said, I want only very old wines. And da, da, da. And I found him a 1917 Chateau Ozone, 12 bottles, original wooden case. It, it belonged to a friend of mine. I know it's been, it's been there forever. And the guy couldn't believe it. And I said, okay, well, listen, you try it. If you don't, if you don't like, if, if you think it's fake, it's fine. I'll, you know, that's it. It's my, it's my loss. The guy bought it. He paid for it. He opened the bottle and he's been buying ever since. 
That's just a, you know, it's like everything. <laughs> that's a good way to attract a new that's client. That's, but that works in the 1917 Chateau Ozone level as much as it works on the fact that you give somebody a Bourgogne Blanc and say, trust me, your wife is going to like it. You know what I mean? <laughs> but but contribute, well, contribute itself, I think what we, what we should also address is what people do about it. Because there's one thing that, you know, yes, of course, you know, a bottle of Lafitte worth $500 in China. Great. Lovely. I mean, empty. I mean, you know, it's, it's wonderful. I know that. But, um, but at the end of the day, what do people do about it? And a lot of them, as much as, you know, we say that you should do this or that the other, they actually don't do that much about it. That is what is the scary part of it. And, you know, I, I, you know, and you mentioned the whiskey, which is quite interesting, that the whiskey producers, they started introducing blockchain into, uh, in, in, They, they, they whole production. And, you know, now you have, uh, you know, chips that go in there and so on and so on. So it's all, it's all happening. But then, you know, I was talking to somebody who is a chip manufacturer in there and he says, well, yes, but, you know, with the EU GDPR problems, we can't trace bottles in where people are taking the bottles, where they store it and so on and so on. So all of a sudden you say, okay, you have all this technology but because of political reasons, you cannot use it, Right. <laughs> yeah, just uh, quickly the, the result of the poll. Uh, so, so two very simple, two very simple questions. Have you ever encountered counterfeit wine? Uh, 80%, 80% say no. Uh, when you buy fine wine, are you worried? Uh, are you worried? Sorry about the spelling. Uh, about <laughs> counterfeit, and it's about <laughs> it's about fifty fifty. So, so potentially at the high end, you, you wouldn't see that, that much of a problem. It's, it's potentially in terms of quantities at, at the middle end, at the, at the middle but, range. But sometimes you're in for surprises, good ones. Um, I once encountered a close case of uh, Latura Pomerol, 1990, which is an incredible vintage for that wine. And I told Michael, I'm going to mention him again, it was 20% of the market of the average market price of a Tropam roll. And I, and I wrote to the guy, I said, why is it so low? He said, I hate wine. My grandfather died. I said, has it been stored in a cellar? He said, listen, it's been stored in the garage uh, for, I think, I don't know, you know how many decades. Um, and, and since probably he bought them on Premier and, and we never touched it. But the garage is pretty stable. It's pretty cool. So I said, this is an honest guy. I'm going to try that. Um, I still have two bottles. This night, this particular case has one blind taste, tastings completely, same vintage, um, open at the same time, and everything treated the same way. Against Cheval Blanc, against Ozon, against uh, Chateau Fijac, and and I, I can continue going. Um, even Petros as well. Uh, we, all blind tasting, and and this wine gets kept on winning. And I tease Michael about it all the time. So sometimes there are surprises and there are some deals, but of course. If it's too good to be true, often it is. It wasn't in this case, though. Yeah. Well, I think, too, if you are trying to get bragging rights and, you know, want to, the 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 billionaire's vinegar, et cetera, et cetera, all this kind of like, I am the fanciest, I am the, mo I have the oldest, I have the this, I have the that. I kind of feel like you get what you pay for, you know? Um <laughs> So uh, yeah. if you really are looking to, to get a very special bottle because you really love wine and I don't know, it's a birth year or it's some sort of important date, that's one thing. But I find honestly, a lot of the motor that drives that very high end that is susceptible to these sort of really big counterfeits mm -hmm. um, is more about ego and bragging rights. And 
I have very little sympathy. Just so I'm clear. Yeah. And going I back obviously to left Akash, my filter in Raleigh. <laughs> back to what Akash was saying, you know, the the in terms of what do you do about it, one of the problems that's come across is that a lot of the people who have this much ego and spend that much money on wine without necessarily knowing what they're doing, really don't want to be shown to be not knowing what they're doing. It's, you know, it's like, it's, it's embarrassing to have been taken by someone. And so I think in a couple of the instances, there were people, the, the Rudy's situation in particular, there were people who just didn't want to testify who who were like, I don't want anybody to know that I got suckered. Yeah. And I think there's another interesting thing. I think there's always a fascinating kind of philosophical question about counterfeits and it comes up in art more than in wine, but you know, if, you know, if someone gives you a counterfeit bottle of 1945, Mouton, let's say, and you and you open it. You don't pay for it, and you open it and you drink it, and it's glorious. But and then one thing about Rudy Kernion, he was very good at counterfeiting the flavor of wines. He fooled people who really knew what they were doing. So if you open that and drink it, and you love it, and you toss the old bottle in the trash, and you go on with your life, did it matter that it was counterfeit? And this, you know, this it's as a question that's been raised about art because there are some some of the art counter fine art counterfeiters have been brilliant artists. Yeah. who just weren't making the real thing. <laughs> and so, you know, once it's an exact replica of something, you know, at, why is it not the same? You know, and, and it goes into a whole lot of aesthetic, aesthetic questions. As, as long as there's no lead in it. it should as be long there's no lead in it, yeah. <laughs> if it's full of lead and mercury, then yes, yeah, yeah, you may have a problem. <laughs> and and you, haven't, you haven't mentioned the worst, um, I know it's not a liquid, but I, I sort of, I class it in the same category, cigars. Once oh, yeah. my, my doctor has been my, been my doctor since the age of 14, um, and he still doesn't need mental treatment, uh, funnily enough. Um, he, um, he, he got me, oh, I have a, a, a box of uh, Cohiba, uh, Behike, Behike, I don't know how to pronounce it, Behike or Behike. And I said, Behike, yeah. And I said, right, and I have uh, four boxes of that aging nicely in my cellar. Um, but I know that they are almost impossible to find because they have been discontinued. And 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 I, I never told him. I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast because I'm screwed. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't I worry. Really hope the likelihood of him listening. <laughs> but 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 that that was easy because the the vehicle they have the um the the label with um like a hologram, and one foolproof test is if you uh, a good cigar should stay upright. If you try to put them. Um, and they and they fall down. Uh, they put them vertically and they fall down. Then they're probably fake. Uh, mm-hmm. And they smoked nothing like Bihiki. But when I had people at uh, dinner parties, guess what's the first box of cigars I opened? So people were like, <laughs> so people were like, oh my god, Joseph Kalea is really great. He gives up Bihiki like 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 they're nothing, and nobody noticed. It was still a good smoke up. I, but I did. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, at all a cigar expert, but I just enjoy them very, very occasionally. Is it, is it as widespread uh, in wine, the counterfeit, as let's say with Vuitton, you know, uh, luxury items and bags and whatever you have? Or is it, is it really well, something on the fringes? Well, I, I can walk down Canal Street and I can buy a fake Vuitton bag for 10 bucks. And uh, so I don't think it's widespread in, in that it's literally everywhere. But um, it's more widespread than I think a, a lot of people in the wine business realize. I mean, I think, um, again, perhaps preaching for my parish, but um, if it's, you know, affecting a very small um, part of the collector audience who can quite honestly afford it, it, it should definitely not happen. But 
okay. But if it's um, affecting actual wineries who are losing out because their products are either being undercut or um, their reputations are being damaged. I think there's a very big difference between, you know, 10 or 12 old bottles that are being created um, and hundreds of thousands of cases that are being flooded into various markets. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a case recently of an Italian group that was counterfeiting Sasakaya and they were, they were, I mean, they were doing at least a thousand cases, if not more, which, you know, yes, Sasakaya is bought by people who have a fair amount of money, but at the same time, that's damaging to the winery to have a thousand cases of what was, you know, basically cheap Puglian red in Sasakaya bottles. It, you know, it, it, it is a financial issue for the winery in that case, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Before we conclude, your thumbs up and thumbs down. If you don't feel like it, it's okay. There's no problem. <laughs> Nothing forced. I know these are these are uh, strange times. Let's put it this way. Um, let's start with you, uh, Ray. Well, thumbs up. Um, I've been doing a lot of tasting uh, for a couple of columns over the past few days, uh, tasting a lot of wines that I don't that I don't know at all. One of them's for a skin contact white column. Um, one is for uh, it's kind of other purposes. And, and, and it's just a reminder. And there's a lot of brands that I haven't run into and a lot of wines that kind of push the envelope of what we normally think of as wine. And, and it's just a reminder that there's so much variety and so much fat, you know, fascinating stuff out there in wine, you know, that even after writing about it for 20 years, I still come across stuff that I'm like, wow, this is terrific. Um, thumbs down. I mean, the, the, the big thumbs down is obviously it's not even a thumbs down. It's too, it's too major to be considered that, but the, the, the whole Ukraine thing is awful on a more realistic level. I, I, I thumbs down to, you know, corked wines. I had two corked wines. You know, this goes back to our conversation <laughs> last week, last week. Know, out, of, out of this wonderful ago. tasting I've been doing. There are two wines that were just, you know, destroyed by the cork that was in them and like, dang it, you know, happens every time. So yeah. thumbs, thumbs down to damaged wine. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Ray. Jamie. Yeah. I mean, thumbs down, obviously what's happening in the Ukraine. And I think it's up to, everyone to make their voices heard. And I hope we all do. Um, Also the ridiculously transphobic piece of legislation that governor Abbott has decided he's going to try and push through in Texas, which is just insane. Um, So, I mean, hello, we're going to arrest parents of trans children. Anyway, um, my thumbs up is um, that I actually made it, which is my first thumbs up. And my second is, um, uh, very, 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 very fond memories of a an amazing diving trip I did in Gozo many, many years ago. Um, it's actually where I got certified uh, for my advanced um, diving certification on my birthday many years ago. So, wow. Yes. Malta uh, is the remember- center of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember where you stayed? Oh my gosh, it was a teeny tiny little place. Um, and I had the genius idea to go for my birthday, which was in, is in March. Um, it was absolutely the coldest I've ever been in my life in the water, but it was so beautiful. And there were only two of us there. So Cliff, the dive master, um, decided to take me for my advanced certification that week. So it was great. Of course. Was I'm, I'm, I'm actually a diver, diver too. I mean, I mean Goza has beautiful um, um, diving mm. spots. Absolutely. Congratulations. Absolutely. Nice. Akosh, thumbs up. Well, yes. First of all, Jamie, I did my diving certificate in New York in end of September. <laughs> <laughs> it's less exotic than, than, it than Gozo. Snowing. <laughs> it was snowing. 
put it that way, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I mean, thumbs up is just we had a very nice skiing holiday, which was last week. Which uh, was Davos. Great. beautiful. Hey, Davos, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. That, uh, that was really good. And, uh, yeah, I had Istvan Sepshi with me, which we, who we all know. He was yeah, we saw the pictures. They were nice. All week because it's uh, 4th in February in uh, in England and uh, so we were in Edinburgh yesterday and in London and da, 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 and we had a nice lunch today uh, as well and yeah so it was a good week so that's uh, that's my thumbs up for everything very nice thank you uh, all of you we'll see you in three weeks on uh, March the 17th and now we're on uh, with uh, Tanisha Townsend for License to Taste Tanisha, good evening. Good evening again. Uh, you're going to tell us everything about wine from Malta. I'm just going to run a very quick poll to get a sense of people's knowledge about wines from Malta. And we'll look at the answers at the end. So, wines of Malta, let us know. And you have I can, <laughs> no pressure. Right, huh? I answered. I answered as well. This one was a little difficult, so I had to <clears throat> put on my professor glasses and my thinking cap. All right. <laughs> Okay, so what I found out about the wines of Malta. Now, I'm about to butcher these pronunciations, so please forgive me in advance. There are two grapes that are native to Malta, Gergantina and then Gelza. Gergantina is Gel white. It's the Gelza. Gergantina, perfect. That's it, Gelza. Thank you. Gargantina is the most planted Maltese variety. It's white. It produces soft, light wines, but it's under threat from Chardonnay. People are now starting to move toward the international varieties because that's what they know. The wines produced from that grape are typically light, low in alcohol, often fairly light on acidity too, but prone to oxidation. Um, uh, the wineries De La Cata and Marsavan make varietal wines from this grape. And uh, the Lacada makes a dry sparkling version. The Galelza is uh, red and it is produced on uh, Malta and Gozo. And it produces light and red fruit flavored wines. Also easy drinking rosé wines with modest alcohol levels. The rosés are pretty successful since they avoid the st astringent tannins that come from that particular grape. Um, it's largely used for rosé, some sparkling rosés, but then some producers use it to blend with Shiraz. So those are the two native grapes. Now, as okay. far as the, as far I, as the how, wine industry... Just, just, just oh, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Midterm, mid uh, how is she doing so far? Uh, she's doing absolutely excellent. I'm impressed. I'm truly impressed. Truly impressed. <laughs> The thinking cap is working. Dame, Dame Tanisha Townsend, please <laughs> proceed. <laughs> okay. As far as the wine kind of, um, I guess, industry, they have DOK, which from my understanding is similar to DOC. And then they have IGT, which is similar to IGP in the French system. And so there's IGT Malt Island, Maltese Islands, and then DOK Malta and DOK Gozo. Of course, DOK is a higher quality, even from the IGT wines, through stricter yields per hectare, methods of cultivation, 
They can only use the most suitable grape varieties and they have to be produced exclusively in Malta and Gozo respectively. IGT wines is a wine produced from grapes cultivated on the islands in general. There's a production protocol. It limits the yield of grapes per hectare to attain a higher quality than just table wines. Okay. Now, let's go a little deeper. Oh. Okay. <laughs> just, just a little, because listen, a, I, I have on my glasses, so we got to we got to. Yes. Let's go. DOK Malta. Well, first of all, let me backtrack a little bit. The climate is Mediterranean, but you all probably figured that because. Yeah. It's there. Because. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> soil types range from sandy to loam to clay. And because um, of the salinity and the saltiness due to the sea proximity, the combination of the soil, the climate, and the environment produce well-structured white wines and intensely colored red wines, usually having sweet tannins, high alcohol levels of 13% or more. This is in DOK Malta. Their grapes that are cultivated there, Gurgentina, Chardonnay, Merlot, Syrah, Cabernet Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blanc, and Cabernet Franc. DOK Gozo, much higher salinity than Malta, mostly clay soil. And uh, these wines cultivated there, flavors are um, possess good structure and balance, lacking harsh acidity. Varieties cultivated, Chardonnay, Merlot, Syrah, Cabernet Sauvignon, Vermentino, and Cabernet Franc. And that's why we call her the wine encyclopedia of the wine hour. <laughs> How is she doing so far? <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, really. And the pronunciation is spot on. Continue. All right. Good. I was so worried. Okay. Yeah. And? And, so, oh. <laughs> no, I'm I'm like, wait, wait. I was waiting for the, for, for the next things. <laughs> oh, uh, I said IGT Maltese, right? I yes. did so. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, the only other thing I want to mention is they have a thing called banderoles. And that those are provided to the wineries. And they are, it's like a band for certification. And it may be attached only to certified wines. Each one has a unique identification number for traceability purposes, and it allows the inspectors to trace the bottle of wine to the batch of grapes used and its specific wine certificate. Okay, so no counterfeits. Right. I thought that was kind of interesting based on what you just talked about. (laughs) Yes, yes. I'm assuming that this is to help counterfeit and then also to protect the DOK and the IGT. Yes. How are the... I don't know if it's available in France, in Paris, if you had the, the opportunity to taste them, because I, I don't, I'm, I don't know, Joseph, are these available outside of Malta or? You might, you might get some, you might get, uh, there's a producer, Tabeta, um, that is shipping um, in some, in some uh, country, ex- exporting some country. I think Marsovin are exporting as well. Not sure about Delicata, but I'm ignorant in the matter. So I'm not, um, I, unfortunately, I never encountered them in wine shops. Um, abroad, but uh, yeah, but slowly they're 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 finding a market. Um, the the she hit uh, for me, of course. I, I it's always interesting to uh, drink a Chardonnay or a Bordeaux style uh, Merlot Cabernet and Cabernet Franc in Malta. But I, I would love to see more people um, experimenting with our local grape varieties to do, as they said, the rosé, the uh, light wine. And even I think they, they can do a sweet sweet wine, if I'm not mistaken, uh, with one of these grapes. So, um, I mean, so I'd rather both these wineries focus on the, on the local, on the indigenous sometimes, because 
those are wines that nobody can beat you in because they're unique and they're endemic to the to the to the to, to, to the country to the island but yeah. um Maltese people are um, incredible wine lovers um and now here we go philip lingard is saying that he has come across meridiana in in london yeah that that yeah absolutely yeah. um so so uh Maltese people are really great wine lovers and i think that if a study uh, uh, were to be made um i think that that malta Maltese people would would probably be the highest consumers of bordeaux wines in the world per capita i'm quite sure of that um by how much wine is is um is is sold um so uh, wine is thriving in malta it's a booming business um many people are exploring many people are enrolling in wine classes and wine education so they're going beyond just drinking they want to learn about it so the jurado of saint-emillon has um visited Malta more than, than once. Uh, we have a chancery, Michael Tabone, again, this friend, third time I'm mentioning him, um, I'm going to start charging him uh, <laughs> soon. And uh, so um, I have visited Saint-Emilion many times. I'm a Père de la Jorade, um, and it's one of the most beautiful wine regions. Of course, I have to mention my friends in Burgundy as well. Um, I recently uh, became friends with uh, Bertrand de Villain of uh, of DRC. Um, he came to my performance in, in Paris and Tosca. We wonderful man, and um, I was at the Clos Vougeot, and I sang for the festival there. And of course, I tasted um, the great Burgundies there. The problem is that no one can afford them when you go 40, 50, 60 <laughs> years in the past. Um, I'm not going to tell you what we drank one evening between five people uh, because it's I'm ashamed. Uh, I wasn't buying. I was a guest in uh, in Hotel Le Cep in Bonn. And uh, Jean-Claude Bernard was opening, and I was drinking. <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna share the results quickly of the poll. Uh, about thirty percent, twenty-five percent know about Maltese wine. Seventy-five percent they don't know about Maltese wine. So I guess there's a lot of things still to be done and worked on. There's a lot of potential uh, for development there in terms of of the knowledge of this. So fascinating about these wine, these wine stories, Tanisha. The Wine Minute. So for those who don't know what the Wine Minute is, it's basically the personal opinion and views of Tanisha on anything related to wine or not necessarily, but she has only 60 seconds to do that. Uh, and this time is your 60 second take on Black History Month. Yes. And for today, it won't be a rant. Usually it's, it's okay. a full rant, but it's, it's not a rant. This okay. Time. You ready? Okay, guys, hold on because I'm going to go fast. Yeah, it's okay. Just <laughs> I'll give you the cue. Ready? Here we go. Black History Month is an annual celebration of achievements by African Americans and a time for recognizing their central role in history. Starting back in 1915, half a century after the Third Amendment abolished slavery in the U.S., there was a Harvard-trained historian, Carter G. Woodson, who founded an organization dedicated to researching and promoting achievements by Black Americans. They started National Negro History Week in 1926, choosing the second week of February because of the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. This noted week uh, started in schools and communities and organized local celebrations. It then turned in the late 1960s because of the civil rights movement. It went from Negro History Week and evolved to Black History Month. And in 1976, U.S. President Gerald Ford urged Americans to participate in its observance 
And I quote what he said, seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of black Americans in every area of endeavor throughout our history. That's your 60 seconds. <laughs> I had a little more, but okay, I'm going to let you know. <laughs> okay, what's, what's, the, what's the extra? Go ahead. Okay, today, Black History Month is a time to honor the contributions and legacy across U.S. history and society from people like Harriet Tubman, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Rosa Parks, Stacey Abrams, President Barack Obama, Josephine Baker, Beverly Johnson, Moving into Beverages, Nearest Green, Fawn Weaver, Mac McDonald, Bertany Faustin, Dorothy Gator, Brene Royal, and hey, let me add myself, Tanisha Townsend. <laughs> Lastly, Black History Month is also <laughs> celebrated in Canada, UK, Ireland, and Germany. Okay, that's it. You should be a rapper. <laughs> uh, with such addiction at this, at this speed, you, you really, really have it. Tanisha Townsend. Thank you very, very much. We see you in three weeks. Now, last but not least, uh, have a drink with me with our special guest, Joseph Kaleha. What a marvelous pleasure to welcome you to the wine hour. Cheers. Still with pineapple juice. And with my herbal tea, we're good. <laughs> you know, Mario Lanza had a huge influence on you musically, and I guess also on your love of wine. Oh my God! You want you want to hear the story? Well, <laughs> I'm sure they won't. It, 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 it's all it's all it's all true. So basically, of course, uh, it's true. I discovered opera through Mario Lanza, the movie, The Great Caruso. And um, I was in, in a rock band and in a, and in a church choir, uh, heavy metal band and a church choir. I tried to please both sides, um, you see, um, so by, by doing that. And um, my uncle told me, oh, come here. I have something for you, you with your devil's music. Um, listen to this VHS tape. And he put in um, a, a VHS copy, might I add, of the great Caruso. And um, the minute he started singing... He, the first thing he does is he's clearing his throat from the flower. He's um, a sex of flower. He's um, carrying in a pizza, pizzeria, the restaurant. And I was hooked and I imitated him immediately. And this tenor voice came out, very young tenor voice, but it came out. Long story short, to help his voice in the same movie, you can see this, The Great Crows of Maya Lanza, he uh, he's asked to sing. Um, and uh, he said, no, 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 too much a flower in the throat. And it's all here. So they pour him red wine. And he drinks, he, he sings. Uh, it's good, but still not perfect. He drinks more. He sings again. Uh, um, it's almost done. Third time with the glass. And he's, and he's completely perfect. So immediately, I'm a kid, right? So I said, red wine equals good singing. Um, long story short, a year or a half later, I went to a choir practice, and I was feeling a bit down. That was, um, And I was 14, and I told my mom, listen, mom, I need some red wine and a small bottle she said what you're 14 you're not gonna have a voice and mom we saw the movie together you know it's good for the voice and i and i went there uh with this uh, uh, uh mineral bottle of water empty filled with um this much with red wine maybe with two glasses of wine in there so they see all the older members came on we said young men do you have a problem I said, what? I said, is that wine you drink? I said, yeah, of course. Haven't you watched The Great Caruso? And then they explained <laughs> to me that uh, red wine is not exactly good uh, just before. Yeah, you but you, kept, you kept the love of wine still. 
And you shouldn't be drinking it when you're 14 years of age. But having said that, um, <laughs> small amounts of alcohol, I've, 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 even with my children, very small, talking about a, a spoon or very little when they were young. I never, you know, I always um, sort of let them grow up with the taste, just the taste of it. And today when they go out, they're in their late teens. No, one of them is in their late teens. Um, Clara, my, my eldest, and Sean, they never came home drunk. I never had a problem with them sneaking in because when you don't prohibit something in a draconian manner usually they end up drinking much more responsible by um, children that that were so strict that they make the wine sort of like the forbidden apple Um, i think children if you avoid that scenario usually they they don't even care because they're surrounded by it so why why lie or why go behind their dad's back to do it yeah so everything in moderation so you're a son of malta and Malta is not really on the map for opera singing, put it this way. It wasn't at, at the time. How, how were you able to, 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 to go from, from Malta to the world, basically? Because it's, it's not, first of all, being a, an opera singer is, is, is not easy at all. It's, uh, we, we go a little bit into the, into the hardship of, 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 of the, the profession. But how were you able to you know, grow coming from a place that is not very well known for, uh, for, for opera singers, and then go to the world stage? The, the truth is I was born with a Rolls Royce in my throat. That is the truth. Um, this is not um, blowing my trumpet. It just, it just happened to be very lucky and to born with an immense, with, a, with an immense, immense, I just invented a new world, word. It's okay. <laughs> with, an immense, with an immense talent. Um, and then I, I had fantastic parents who never got into the, in, in the way. Um, and I found a fantastic teacher right away, Paul Ashak, my late teacher, who is sorely missed to this day. And um, I, I, I started. I mean, I, I think that I'm the only 43-year-old sing, 44-year-old now, just turned 44, singer in the world that is 44 and has 25 years of singing uh, professionally already. Because I started, I had my professional debut in a leading role at the age of 19, um, and then I never looked back. But it sounds easy. Um, it isn't. It's true that I was born with a talent, but the, but the, the studying is relentless and continuous. Honestly, it is more difficult, um, in my opinion, to become a successful opera singer and to become uh, a specialist doctor. There's so much studying on yourself and music and theory and listening to recordings. Um, after 10 years, you still know nothing. After 15, you start um, 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 knowing something. And it's... Um, it's it's frustrating because you carry your instrument. So your instrument is not a Stradivarius. Your Stradivarius is in your throat. So you're not carrying something that if you're a little bit ill, you can you know your instrument is not affected. You just play it. But when you carry it, acid reflux. How you feel? Did you fight with a loved one? Do you have thoughts on your head? The cold? The allergies? Is it dry in the plane in the hotel room? It's a constant because it's like it's like um, being at the Olympics every day of your life, every performance, you're doing a superhuman feat. That's pretty much an explanation of all. It's, it's, it's being an opera singer, you're an actor, you're a singer. Uh, there's so many things taking place at the same time and, and there's no amplification. <laughs> it's your voice that, that is projecting in the whole uh, theater, basically. So there's tremendous physical uh, demand on, on, on your work. How can you, how can you really cope with that? Because it's, it's, it's not natural. 
<laughs> no, you're right. That's exactly it. And especially a tenor's voice is not natural because the natural register of a, of a man, voice register, is usually bass, baritone, or baritone, or bass, usually more bass, baritone. Um, so a tenor's voice, a natural tenor's voice, is a freak of nature. In fact, um, I'm not sure if Nellie Melba used to say that. She used to say, um, tenor is not a voice, it's a disease. How do you do it is by discipline. Um, as I said, no alcohol, no smoking, no, no socializing, no talking a lot, no clubbing. Um, if it's very cold outside, you have to go and find other ways of the exercise, keeping yourself fit. I, I am overweight, but I work out every single day, at least one hour, whether that's a fast walk, whether it's a jog, whether it's a session of uh, high hit of high intensity training in the gym or, or, or weightlifting. I train every day except performance day because the training is on stage. Yesterday I did Bohem and with the running, standing up, kneeling down, falling down, running around, you know, I changed my shirt twice because it's completely drenched because you have the lights on stage, really, um, uh, it's really warm. Um, it's mostly boring, uh, but sometimes you, you, you have ex extraordinary moments, like when you're, um, you know, when you're on stage and everything works, everything clicks. Did um, you work you're, yesterday? You're were, you, were you happy with your performance yesterday? Premieres yesterday are, 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 are tough. There must be so much pressure. Yesterday was a particularly good performance of Bohem, and I, I rank it in the top five of my performances ever. I've been singing Bohem. I think now for more than, I think for 21 or 22 years now. I sang it for the first time in Canada, in Toronto, in a huge theater, 5,000 seats at the Hummingbird Center, it was called. Um, I don't know what it's called now. And I think that's it's more than, than, than two decades now that I've been singing La Bohème. And yesterday, uh, I haven't sang it for two or three years because of COVID. I was scheduled to sing it again, but COVID had other plans. And uh, yeah, and uh, but yesterday was very good. Rest of the cast, everything clicked. Yeah. As you were talking about COVID, might as well talk about this now. How sure. the, the problem, it, it, there's a lot of things that stopped, performing arts have stopped. And, and we know that one of the things that makes our society what we are is, is the performing arts, the arts in general. Uh, how, how difficult was it on the profession? Uh, so there are, there are people that were basically out of work for, for a couple of years because they couldn't have events. Yeah. How did the profession, uh, especially opera as well, it's a small world. It's not as if it's, it's not pop music where you have like uh, lots of people around you. It's, it's a small world. It's, it's, it's a niche world. Let's put it this way. How did the, the profession cope with this? And how are you going to move forward from this? Two words, very badly. Um, very badly. I mean, everybody was out of work, including myself. I invented some work, TV work, but I could do artists like me could do that because of their profile. Other young singers couldn't. Um, I think the first six months of the pandemic, I understand that we didn't have a vaccine. We didn't know what this disease, this virus could do, but now we know. And now we are in, in most of the, of, of the Western world, highly vaccinated. In Malta, we are over 95%, two, two doses, and over 85% with the third dose, with the booster dose. So now countries that still have kept restrictions um, when hospital cases for, let me take Malta as an example. The authorities in Malta did a fantastic job, Minister Chris Fern, fantastic job, and his team in distributing the vaccines and, and making sure everybody is informed. But now I think they have, um, they have to be brave and listen to reason and to what the people want and to science. Because 
In Malta now, we have a situation where in a restaurant and the bar, you don't even need a vaccination certificate, but to go to the theater, up, they've removed it now, but up to a few days ago, you still need, need the vaccination certificate to go to the theater. So what you're telling people is COVID will not infect you in a bar or um, restaurant, even if, even if you talk around for five hours, sipping wine and, and laughing and drinking, but in a theater, it will. This has to stop. They now, now in places like Malta, where I think there are two people in the intensive care units, and I think uh, 60 people total who are COVID positive in hospital. Not, not They're not there, most of them, because of COVID. They're just COVID positive, and they're there for other ailments. So I know with all due respect of those people who lost um, relatives, friends, loved ones to COVID, I understand that, but uh, people kept on dying and will keep on dying with other morbidities. I lost my uncle, 62 years old, with um with a heart uh, a problem we didn't know, nobody knew, but had he got tested, had his screening was not canceled, a couple of months he would still be alive today. I I'm, I'm lost another friend, also 62, Dino Chafai from Gozo, was a very well-known businessman, personality, wonderful man, who was like a brother to me, uh, family, and he didn't die of COVID either. So, so my... My stance now is stop punishing the arts. The, the theater uh, is one of the safest places you can be. Everybody inside is pretty much vaccinated. They have to be because they can't get in. Uh, most theaters are still imposing masks. Um, I don't agree with that, but hey, it's, it's something that we could live with. And you're standing in your seat, looking at the stage, not talking, not drinking. Mm. So if there, if it's okay to go to clubs, to restaurants, to pubs, etc. And it et should cetera, be okay to go to theaters. It has definitely. to be to go yes. okay to the theater. Now, COVID has nothing to do with science anymore, and it's all politics and authorities uh, gauging how much they can get away with uh, when it comes to control. And of course, now everything will be eclipsed um, with this horrible and terrible yeah. uh, Russia-Ukraine. They're going to start talking about different things. Actually, conflict. you can see it in the news now. There's a, the COVID is, is at the bottom of the pages. That's it. Now, now, it's, now because this is, this is of course, um, and of course, my sympathies, I mean, how terrible, a war that already have several dozen people, if not hundreds, dead. But one thing we have to be careful is that not every Russian all of a sudden has become um, a war criminal. Let's understand that there are many Russian people against this conflict um, and the Russian by birth, they can do nothing about that. Because at the moment I'm seeing everything, oh, everything is Russian is bad. All the Russians are bad. All the Russian musicians are, we got to stop this. Uh, we got to stop this black and white and you know attack attack the message of anything but not the messenger we gotta stop it in malta as well there are um several factions almost like cult not almost like cult members you're either with us or you're against us completely and 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 you know you're the devil if you're not 100 with us the world democracy intellectualism doesn't work like that music music is is, is one of the most peaceful ways of of, of bringing yeah. people together Yeah. You'll be singing at the Bolshoi, if I'm not mistaken, soon. Is it still on? Been, no, no, that is it's off of the charts. No, I think I think that's um, that that was not tenable um, in this situation, of course. And one has to civilly and peacefully protest. What I mean to say um, is not not protesting um, this horrible war. Um, what I'm saying is not going with the civilians, with personal, with, with the people, with the Russian people, with the core Russian people 
who have who have nothing to do with politics, have nothing to do with with Vladimir Putin and the echelons of of Russian power. We can't all of a sudden demonize millions of people, a whole nation, be, be, because be, because of this. So we have to be very. The protests have to be civil. They have to be strong. We have to support Ukraine, of course, but not by demonizing all of a sudden um, all the Russian culture, because that's 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 not how these things uh, yeah, work. And, it's a very complicated. It's a very complicated yeah. um, issue. It goes back. So it's this black and white, you know, judge, jury, and execution trial by social media by armchair critics while they're you know stuffing their faces with nachos it it, it has to stop it, it, you know this is this is not what 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 the real world um, is about yes and as we were saying music is is the sound of peace and in your music selection there was metallica nothing else matters why did you choose that song it was my um in my repertoire to uh, hook up with girls when i was a teenager <laughs> So um, very successfully. Did it, did it, did it work? Yes. <laughs> um, if, if that didn't work, Wicked Game would have. So one of okay. the two uh, gave you a 100% chance of um, success. So so basically, yes. And uh, no, I, 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 I was a metalhead. Um, I still am in the gym. But I, I listen to all kinds of music. Um, I quote Pavarotti said, he, he says, there is not uh, opera and the music. There is a uh, good music and the bad music, <laughs> imitating Pavarotti <laughs> when he said that. So, uh, so yeah. Um, so, so on a segue to this, what's the difference between a good opera singer and a great opera singer? Oh boy, um, it boils down to beauty, power, and distinctive voice if you if you have those three things you have a great voice that is the difference some singers have the power but not the beauty or they have the the beauty and the power but not the dis distinctive of it it's like a wine so many parallels to wine a voice um you know in wine in wine you need technique to do it you need it in singing um you need the consistency um no great wine was made by just one vintage um you need the art um, to do it and the patience and the devotion exactly like opera you need time for it to mature the the sport of singing is the only sport that you get better as you age exactly like wine when it's a great wine of course because not all wine um, age properly, is good yes. for uh, age is good for age like men but, uh, not all of them age properly <laughs> no but but yeah but but i mean but women hate us for that they say oh you men you when you take care of yourself you get only you get only more good looking women hate us for that and they're right they're right they're absolutely right when it comes to that why, why do you love wine so much why do i love wine so much i love wine so much because it's evol it's ever evolving because it's unique um because like an opera performance no bottle is exactly the same. You can have different cases of the same vintage. You bought at the same time. You open the wine. For some bloody reason, one bottle is better than the other. And you can't explain why, even though they were stored in the same. How, how it brings people together. Um, I wasn't exaggerating before. It's what we do in Malta. It's have our family, our kids, our dogs running around. Um, have a nice place with a nice view. And we cook on fire. We cook uh, foods that complement wine, um, so fish, uh, seafood, uh, paella, uh, great cuts of uh, beef, and, and we just enjoy and cheese, of course, and oysters with with um, with champagne, and and I love I love eating oysters with with a strong Chardonnay, usually Californian, my favorite artistler, and the Lewis and the Jordan, the Russian River. So it's it's just it brings people 
together, the tradition, um, the winemaking goes back literally thousands of years. The the I mean it's it's infinite. And, and you know, and I, I I'm not a wine expert. I, I collect wine in a, but I'm a wine lover. If, if I'm not a wine expert, I'm certainly a, um, a wine lover and I'm surrounded by wine experts that um, tell me when um, that I'm being an idiot when it's uh, necessary. <laughs> and my friends, yeah, my, yeah, all my friends, I, I, I was never one of those people who would rather be ruined by praise than saved by criticism. And I'm, I have a good group of friends. Um, I'm an old soul, so almost all of my friends are older than me. Um, and and it's true. Uh, and uh, but I, I love each and every one of them, and uh, we're family. We're not even friends. We're we're pretty much family. Yeah. Does it uh, does it complement? We, because we see very often, you know, at opera entr'actes and you know people drinking champagne. And yeah. Champagne at in oh, opera I mean, or wine in opera. I mean, I mean, think I mean, think about it. In the in the in the olden times, um, when you were in in the old theaters in the boxes, you could have a whole dinner was um, um, watching an opera, was listening and watching to an opera. I mean, what they used to do is, I think it's unacceptable, but they used to do is um, sometimes <laughs> have dinner during the performance and then just stop to listen to the famous aria. They wouldn't even listen to, to um, you know, in, in the time of Rossini, in the time even before of Mozart, uh, later in the time of Verdi, they, that, that this is how, you know, people behaved in, 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 in theaters. So when they finished and eating, they left? No, no, no. I mean, I no, I, I don't know. But, uh, but they were very, you know, it was in olden times was more akin, especially in the 17th, 18th century. It was more akin to people like going to a, you know, to a drive cinema. You know, when you when you go with your car mm -hmm. and you're eating your popcorn. I mean, do I want popcorn in 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 a theater? No, but a glass of champagne in the boxes while watching a performance, there's no harm. Um, when I when I did one of my fundraisers for my foundations. I, at the Manuel Theater, I said, you know what? I'm going to sell the boxes with champagne service. Just champagne, no food, no mm -hmm. nothing. Uh, good quality plastic cups, so there's no noise. And um, those were the boxes we've sold for a crazy amount of money, which, of course, all of it went uh, to my foundation to help um, our young and talented multi-scholars as the first, first boxes that went. Yeah, as a great segue. You're the patron of the Drake Kaleha Trust that awards scholarships uh, to gifted musicians. And you launch also with the Bank of Valletta, the BOV Joseph Kaleta Foundation, which helps vulnerable individuals uh, and social groups in Malta. Why is this you know, philanthropic work so important to you? Because I want no one in Malta to have an excuse if they have talent not to sing, not to, not to, not to, no, or not to play an instrument because we help students through all the plethora of performing arts and even I think in, in academia when somebody's really talented mathematician, mathematician or he's a stage or, or an artist um, we help everything I mean we've, I've raised we've raised as a foundation um, I created the foundation with Banco Valletta but we the board members the patrons who generously give we've raised um, around 1.4 million euros which for Malta's size and demographics is huge Um, and we're helping more than 85 scholars. Um, none of us are paid and we can't even claim expenses. That's in the rules. We're audited. We're officially registered with the various authorities. So we have, because of that, we have more than 98% renewal rate from our patrons. There's the Maltese one. Um, and we help as well the vulnerable children in schools with cultural programs. We've reached, I think, more than 2,500 kids um, there. And why? Um, is it an ego trip? No, it's doing good for the sake of doing good, 
period. Indeed, sometimes uh, the the work involved gets to be a pain in my ass when um, when I sorry for the word for being frank, but it's true when you know when you're dealing with traveling. I've changed time zones five times, but then when you see the the success stories, when you see the joy in the in the scholars, um, uh, you know when you when you literally the, the the joy of giving sometimes is greatly under underrated. And how did it start? It started when I was 15 years of age. There was a very talented brass uh, student, player. Long story short, my teacher, um, my piano and theory teacher, called for his parents as a brass expert from the UK, holidaying by chance in Malta. And they asked him and he told them, well, this guy with some investment, with some study, he can be one of the best in the world. And they said, but we're simple people who don't have the funds. And I said at the age of 15, delusions of grandeur, if I am ever in a position to avoid this happening again, I will do it. That's honestly hand on heart how this um, started. And Benko Valletta was an incredible partner. Um, they do all the administration again, all for free. They, they all do it on a pro bono basis. And I think we've changed the landscape in Malta today. Any young artists in Malta, from all the plethora of the performing arts, um, and even I think in, in academia, if they're good, they don't have an excuse that they don't have help. Yeah. We're not the only one helping. There's the government as well has um, programs for young for young artists. Um, but I think as a private NGO, as a private uh, foundation, I think we're so far I think we're the only ones that uh, that we're doing that. And my chairman, Roderick Chalmers, dress of the board, I would be nothing without them. And they're the heart. The Drake yeah. Alea Trust in the UK is doing great things as well. But my involvement there is less, especially now since COVID. That's the brainchild of the genius that Mr. James Drake um, is. Yeah. He donates his own money. I sometimes do some events for them, but he has an incredible team. And I think there isn't one... Uh, star student or star young player at the moment that did not uh, benefit from the bursary from the Drake Kalia Trust mm -hmm. in the UK. Because at the end, you saw that with the help of people, you were able to grow your talent and to reach the world stage because across the different moments, you had someone there to support you. And, and the importance of that support is, is, is key not there's nothing where you do everything on your own and, and there's it's 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 uh, it's a, someone believing in you giving you the chance to go forward and that's a priceless gift you you're so right um i i don't know i don't know why i'm like this i think i i mean i mind you i have uh, 3005 defects but um i think the 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 one um the one th Thing I have uh, maybe a bringing maybe multi-culture, which is very warm. Uh, you're you're, uh, you're the cult, uh, cultural ambassador of yeah. Malta. <laughs> yeah, but but, <laughs> but but it's but it's true that um, the I, I go again the joy of giving, and I'm not saying this because it's you know oh look how sweet he is, what a wonderful. It really isn't. Sometimes it's really hard to concentrate on something that is 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 giving absolutely no financial um, reward whatsoever, but. The again, the pleasure uh, we have, for example, one baritone, uh, Charles Budicic. He is, I think, the youngest ever student to be accepted um, at the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia. He's studying baritone voice. He's a prodigy. He, um, I, I, I always say he's the Joseph Kalea baritone version, um, and he has incredible voice. He started from nothing um, when it came to voice and when it came to other um, personal things. It was a difficult thing for him. 
And now he's graduating. Um, I think he just graduated a few days ago, if I'm not mistaken. He is in demand by so many studios around the world, um, has interest from Metropolitan, from La Scala, from, from, and it's incredible to, to see something that you, 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 you discover at the age of 15. Um, discover not in the sense that I deserve any, I don't, I deserve nothing. I, it's not, but he, by discovering the sense that it's like finding a diamond and you just pick it up, you clean it a bit and, and, you know, and, and it's, and it's sparkling and illuminating the lives of everybody that, um, you know, it touches. And, and mm-hmm. Charles is an example. There's Marvik Monreal. It makes, it makes it, it makes it worth it. Yeah, it's, there's you know there there's so many artists that um, that you know I've just did a classic FM I think it was last year uh, live from St John's Co Cathedral um, I had one of the uh, scholars Marvik Monreal she's a mezzo incredibly beautiful voice and she sang a small role in the opera Edo Foscari in Salzburg she was doing a, an apprenticeship there and and the on stage it was Plaza Domingo Joseph Calea from Malta and Marvik Monreal from 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 wow. Malta so. It, it really, you know, this is Malta, like Wales, like countries like Wales, Malta has something in the water when it comes to operatic voices. There are so many um, good, good, ones. Um, um, good voices. I mean, I mean, Turner is right now. There's, for example, he's not one of my foundation um, um, uh, scholars. He didn't need us. That's great. Um, but like people like Nico uh, Darmanin, for example, who's, who's uh, doing a career, very good career. Um, in Europe, but I'm sure he'll go to North America as well. There's so many artists at the moment that they're doing really well, and I'm proud of every one of them, uh, whether they were part of the foundation or not. And um, it, it's what it's what Malta needs. We don't our natural resource. We don't have gold. We don't have silver. I <laughs> All think we it's have more, is it's more worth to <laughs> have, have beautiful we have, we have us. <laughs> we have us. There's a question from the audience that says. Any tips for a person who does not understand music to appreciate opera? Start listening. Um, Puccini is a great starter. Go to La Boheme, read, read uh, a synopsis, three minutes of the opera. Go to La Boheme where there are subtitles if you don't understand Italian. Uh, or go to Tosca, same composer. I think Puccini is perfect uh, to start because Puccini writes music like a movie score. Tosca runs like a movie. La Boheme runs like uh, a movie. One of those two operas, um, if, if you have to like one of them because yeah. it's, the music is so um, so cinematic. Remember, um, John Williams, the great composer John Williams, um, uh, he got um, he got his inspiration for from the uh, intermezzo of Manon Lescaut. Go on YouTube right now. And and all he added was pa 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 pa. I think it's even <laughs> the same. I think it's even the same case. So opera is not boring. Just give it a chance. If if you think opera or classical music is boring, the Verdi Requiem, play the Dies Era uh, for the Verdi Requiem. I, it will give you a pump in the gym as much as um, Hell's Bells or uh, Back in Black from from ACDC. Honestly, yeah. here's the Dies Era. When you have all that chorus in your ear, it's it's incredible. It's you, you know you 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 really go. But how did Verdi um, write this? You know, if you want if you have a dinner party um, and you want to impress by being a bit you know suave, play Mozart. Mozart was the genius of geniuses. You know, if you're if you're angry at your wife or the wife is angry at the husband, play Beethoven. You know, I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it, it's there's 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 music is like wine. Um, we do and we can pair music 
to our mood. Music can make us feel better or worse. Uh, think of movies. Okay, can you imagine Jaws, anyone, without... Without that, um, it, it's nothing. It doesn't... Steven Spielberg said as much. Star Wars... You remove the score of Star Wars, it's really stupid movie, the first one. Um, then it got better. But um, really, Indiana Jones, can you imagine um, Harrison Ford, you know, uh, go, doing, you know, whipping his whip? You know, music is, is, music is life and life is music. Yeah. The, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a side note, if, you, if you're looking from some pieces of opera without going into the full opera, Check the albums of of, of Joseph Kelly. There's, there's not a promotion. I it they are they are, they give you an overview, especially his album on Verdi or the tenor arias. It gives you an overview of the some of the most beautiful arias that you have, beautifully sung, and it gives you that 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 okay, this is what's possible, and then you can go afterwards in 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 the full operas. But I think to start with arias already, they would be very, uh, very, very interesting. There was one thing I wanted to ask you. I know we, we could spend hours talking, but there was one thing that I wanted to ask you. I heard you say that voice is something spiritual. There's something spiritual about singing, about the voice. Can you just elaborate a little bit on that? Because this is something, you mentioned it a few times in our conversation, about that spiritual aspect of music and how it transcends and everything. When, um, first of all, there's something about, um, I think it's, I might be corrected, 432 hertz. I'm not sure what is a natural um, um, vibration um, in, in 460 nature. or 470 or whatever. Like no, the I think not, I think that's, too, oh. that's too high. Yeah, I think, I think it's 432 something, okay. something like that, but I, but I stand to be corrected. There is something... Um, uh so so for example um i think they did a study on cats when they pair um and their kittens are injured or they're feeling bad they the vibrations from from i guess the the larynx of the of the cat actually physically not only soothes the cat but actually it heals something happens on a cellular level that they start healing faster and in a more efficient way um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, same thing happens with the mother's voice when she's singing a lullaby to her child. When you're singing a lullaby, there's more than just the soothing sound of, of the voice. There's something that somehow the well-being is not just a psychological one, but it's also a physiological one uh, from studies were made. Why is singing spiritual? Because um, if you think about it, um, we owe music to what? We owe music to um, ecclesiastical music, to the church, right? That's how everything everything started in a, in a temple or in a church or whatever whatever religion uh, one abides by. And um, when hearing live performance, when you're hearing um, an opera, a tenor, a soprano, baritone, whatever your choice is, whatever the opera is, and you're able to hear a natural visceral sound emanating from a human being with no distortion, no amplification, no microphone, no altitude. It just does something. Um, the, the, the proof of this, if you, if you watch sometimes, for example, X Factor or Britain's Got Talent or whatever got talent in the various countries, when an, when an operatic voice comes along 
everybody like starts crying immediately. The first one of the first emotion when they hear Nessun Dorma, people or, or people start crying because it just I don't know what it is. I don't know it, if it's a um, primeval feeling that we get when we listen to this full sound that the human body is is able to to do. I mean, the human vocal folds were not made for opera. Is really a miracle of nature that we use this, we, we modify it with technique and with practice into something that something completely um, beautiful. When some theoretical physicists write that, and now there are few mainstream ones that are saying that um, we are living in a simulation, in a matrix. There are some, there's, you know, I, I think the odds are about 45 to 50% that we are um, living indeed in a simulation and that, that reality is not what it seems. But my one of the arguments from my ignorance that I would use against that is what simulate simulations are efficient, right? Processors, even even a super intelligent computer in ten thousand years down the line, even a million years down the line, it's gonna be efficient. Who's gonna waste so many resources to to try and create the beauty of Mozart, of Beethoven, of Verdi, you know, of Donizetti, of of uh, Rimsky-Korsakov, of Tchaikovsky? Who, who which which simulation? I mean, I think I think that that that's the one of the one things that I I cling to that we're not and that that we're for real because uh, again, my favorite piece of classical music is the is the Verdi Requiem. Um, it's you hear it and it's like, how did this music come out of anything less than 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 godly than a god? Um, same thing with so many composers. It depends from from what you like. We could go on for hours. We, we could. We could. We, 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 we're getting close to the end. But before that, uh, we'll have the pivot questionnaire. So it's the first thing that comes to your mind. Are you ready? Okay. 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 So okay. what is your what is your favorite word? My favorite word: uh, uh, wine. <laughs> What's your least favorite word? Taxes. What's your favorite virtue? Generous. What's your favorite quality in a man? One. Uh, honesty. What's your favorite quality in a woman? Honesty. What wine or dish would you use to describe yourself? An aged uh, USDA ribeye cooked <laughs> on, 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 olive, on dried olive branches. What is your favorite curse word? Any language? <sighs> I have to say it. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, definitely fuck. Uh, what sound or noise do you love? Church bells in a village. What sound or noise do you hate? The alarm clock when it's when it's when I, when I have to use it. Rare, <laughs> rare times I have to use it. What plant or animal would you like to be reincarnated in? Definitely a lion. And the last question: If heaven exists, what would you like to hear say God when you arrive at the pearly gates? I would like to say that uh, the heaven I'm I'll be hopefully admitted to. I have my doubts. Uh, would be Valhalla. <laughs> <laughs> I, I prefer. I really love the uh, the heaven idea of heaven of of, of the Scan, of the Scandinavians. Um, you know, feasting around in the in the hall with all the with friends and foe alike. Uh, I really love. Uh, so Valhalla, it is. Valhalla, it is absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, uh, my my Archbishop friend from Malta is a wonderful uh, man. He's gonna kill me. Uh, anyway, but uh, it, it, it's okay. Joseph Kaleha, grazie, Hafna. Thank you so much. And thank you so much. It was wonderful. Thank you. 
So this concludes the wine hour for today. Thank you for listening. Next show is on March 17th. Until then, drink in moderation, be well and safe. Faith always. Goodbye. <laughs>